studying through the book of James in this series called The Essential James today. And to start off, we've kind of created three goals for our series, three principles that we want to make sure that we have in place. And they come from James chapter 1, verse 25, which is our theme verse for this series. And it says this, it says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so from this verse, we've pulled three pieces, three parts of the verse to give us three goals, three things that we are aspiring for. And so these are my goals for this series. I hope that they are your goals for this series. They are my goals for you as an individual, for us as a church. But number one, we want to look intently into the book of James. It says James 125, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Well, the book of James is part of that law that gives freedom. So we're going to look intently. We're going to set aside time. We're not going to read it very quickly while we're in a hurry and we're in a rush. We're not going to read it while the game's on or while we're talking on the phone. We're, we're going to set aside time, 10, 15 minutes, block out the distractions of the day and say, you know what? God, you're worth it. Your word is worth it. I'm going to look intently into your word. And so let me just speak a word of grace here because I know we're halfway through this series. We're halfway through our book. Um, <coughs> excuse me, actually a little over halfway. And I know for some of you, maybe you started out strong and then life hit and, and you had a rough couple days. And if you're like me, sometimes when I hit those rough couple days, that can set me off track for a little while. Uh, so, so if that's you, can I just say this? We're at the halfway point uh, of as far as the Sundays are concerned. Let's just hit the reset button. Right here, like if you missed, if you haven't read at all through the series, or, or maybe you did, you started and you got a couple days in and then you got off track and you said, you know what, this is too hard, or, or I just don't have the time for this, or I'm not good enough at this, or whatever thing that you said, we're just going to hit reset. And so for the next couple of weeks, I invite you to participate with us with this, to, to read, and we'll talk about it at the end of our message today, but to read James chapter 4 this week every day this week to look intently. And if you do trip up and you miss a day, don't let that get you down. Just pick it right back up the next day and look intently in to God's word. Second thing we're doing is we are going to continue looking intently into the book of James. It says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. So we believe that there's benefit by actually reading the same chapter, not just once, but reading it again and again. And again, that, that we're seeing different aspects of it, that we're allowing uh, God's spirit to, to marinate us in his words, that, that we're soaking it in and we're getting it to a depth that we don't normally receive. And then finally, number three says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues it and not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. Our biggest goal for this series, my biggest goal for you is that we, and for myself, that we would do what the book of James says. Because this book is all about action. It's all about getting our life in order with our belief. It's, it's all about knowing what God has asked of us and putting that in to practice. And so it's super practical. I think it's probably the most practical book in the New Testament and one of the most practical books in the entire Bible. We are going to do what the book of James says. So with all that being said, we're going to continue with a, a little tradition that we've had over the last couple of weeks. We're going to stand and we're going to read through James chapter 3 together. And I know some of you have uh, 
struggled with the, the reading it on the screen, and man, by reading it, maybe you're not soaking it in as well. So this week, and maybe next week we'll do it different, but this week, I'm going to read it, and I'm just going to ask you guys to look on the screen or to look into your Bible and, and to marinate on, meditate on what God is saying as we read. So go ahead and put verse 1 up for us, please. It says this, says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Next verse. You can just go to him as soon as we get to the end. Thank you. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we have an opportunity to hear from you. God, that we have an opportunity to to open your word on a daily basis and receive encouragement from you, receive direction from you, receive leadership from you. God, sometimes receive correction from you. God, we ask today that you would give us ears to hear that you would give us eyes to see exactly what you would reveal to us, exactly what you would say to us. God, that we would be aware of your presence in this place, that we'd be aware, Lord, that that this is not just a document that was written 2,000 years ago, God, but it was written even with us in mind. God, that you have application for us to make in our daily life. Help us to find that, God, as we look intently into your word today. We thank you for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone said Amen, amen. High five somebody as you grab a seat. All right. So one day, my eighth grade class was going to take a field trip. And I don't even remember specifically which field trip this was. We took a few. I think it's when we went to the Museum of Natural History. I still lived in Seattle, Washington at this point in time. And so uh, I was homeschooled first through seventh grade. So eighth grade was my first year in public school. And it was a big deal to me uh, to to get to go on field trips and to get to do these things with people. And so like many teenagers, um, I was self-conscious about many things, but specifically self-conscious 
about my parents. And so as we are boarding the bus to go on this field trip, who shows up but my mom? The most devastating, horrifying, terrible thing I could imagine in eighth grade. My mom shows up to grab me, and she comes running out of the car, and she has my lunch. I had forgotten my lunch at home. Uh, And so my mom had taken time out of her day. She had gotten dressed and and come to the school and got there just in time to make sure that I had my lunch because she wanted to make sure that I didn't go without a lunch that day. And so how did I respond to her graciously and gratefully and honored her for bringing that down there? I wish I could say that's what I did, but I gave her the worst attitude, the worst reception. I was like, Mom, what are you doing? You're embarrassing me, right? Because nobody wants, when you're in eighth grade, you don't want your friends to know you have parents. Um, you, you want people to think you raised yourself uh, and, and that you have no recognition of a mom or a dad. And, and I treated her so badly in that moment, and this person who was honoring me, who was selflessly serving me, I dishonored. And I think all of us in this room, probably time and time again, if we were real honest, we could look at opportunities and moments in our life where for whatever reason, and maybe sometimes we understand it and maybe sometimes we don't, where someone was doing something for us, or maybe not doing something for us, but someone was doing something that didn't deserve the reaction we gave them. And with this thing, with our tongue, we cut them down. We hurt them. We harmed them. We dishonored them. For me, looking back on that, I'm like, man, what a jerk. Like, I was a terrible kid. Why would I do that to my own mother? And yet, so many times, so many of us, even as Christians, we let this thing in here get the best of us. And in the moment when the stress is on, when the pressure is on, when, when whatever is going on that, that causes us to be distracted, that causes us to feel that pressure, we react and some stuff comes out that we don't like. I've heard it said that, that a lot of times people are like a tube of toothpaste. When you apply pressure to them, you find out what's really inside. Uh, and sometimes when pressure has been applied to me, I don't like what comes out. I don't like what I discover is really inside of me. And the book of James takes a few moments here in chapter 3, in fact, the majority of chapter 3, 12 verses, to address exactly that, how so often we let this thing get the best of us. James compares our tongue to poison. He says it's a world of evil. He says it's even inflamed by the fires of hell, like Obviously, he's exaggerating a little bit. He's using a a literary device called hyperbole to make a point. He's not literally saying that your tongue is on fire or that hell has grabbed a hold of you, but he's saying it kind of sometimes feels like that, doesn't it? That, That this little thing can set things on fire and that we don't even understand. We think that we're these good people. We think we're encouraging people. We think we're positive people, but when we really look at the way that we treat others, And the things that we say to them, sometimes we fall short of who God has called us to be. We're going to read through this chapter together and and pick out a few things as we go. But I want you, as we go into this, to, to allow God's spirit to speak to you, to open up your heart. Because I think what he's going to do is he's going to start to put his finger on perhaps an area or perhaps even multiple areas that your tongue is destructive. Uh, It it might look different for different people. For some of us, it might be gossip. 
For some of us, it might be lies. For some of us, it might be dishonesty. For some of us, it might be put-downs. For some of us, it might be criticism. Uh, For some of us, it might be profanity. For some of us, it might be just talking dirty. There's so many different ways that our tongue can get the best of us. But but I would ask you and invite you to, to allow God to speak to you. What's the biggest area that I need to get my tongue under control? What's the, what's the biggest difference, God, between the speech that you would ordain for me to walk in and the place that I'm at in my life right now? Starting in verse 1, he said, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This is the worst verse in the Bible for people like me. It's the worst verse in the Bible if you do what I do. If you have accepted a call into ministry and you stand on a stage with a microphone and dare to open up God's word and try to teach it, James says, don't aspire too quickly to that. Don't gun too hard for that and be warned if you get to that position, God's going to hold you to a higher standard. It's a scary thing for somebody who does what I do. And I think there's kind of two facets to James's warning. I think, number one, he, he was putting the warning out there for those who maybe will never be in that position and, and who look enviously at those who are. That, that maybe you don't have that spiritual gift and maybe God hasn't placed that anointing on you and, and you look at somebody who stands up here in a position like this, like, man, I wish I could do that man, I wish God could use me like that. And, and you feel like somehow you are lacking or somehow you don't measure up or somehow you're not good enough. And, and James is saying, look, you don't need to aspire to that. God's put many gifts in his family and they're not all gonna look the same. And if all of us were teachers, we'd be lacking in some other areas. And so don't look at somebody else's gift, whether it be teaching or whether it be worship or, or whether it be being good with kids or good with money or whatever it might be. Don't look at that and be envious of their gift drill down into the gift God gave you man find out what has God placed in you and take advantage of that and use it but the flip side warning and the probably more specific and more direct warning that he gives is for those of us who stand in this position who stand behind a pulpit who open God's word publicly he says there's going to be a higher standard for you and for me and so I know that that I've got to live, like, like when I teach this stuff to you and I see that I don't measure up, that scares me. Like when I see that my tongue has a problem, like that frightens me because I know because of the position that God's put me in, he's expecting more out of me. He's expecting me to live above reproach. And so I, I desire that and, and I chase after that and I'm not by any means arrived there or gotten there. But I think it's a spiritual principle that God puts out throughout scripture that ultimately those who he places in authority in any type of position are going to be held to a higher standard. When he placed Adam in authority in the garden and it was Eve who took the fruit, God came looking for Adam because he was the one he was going to hold responsible. He was the one who God had given the responsibility. And so men as the leaders in a home don't think that that means, okay, I get to man, wield this authority over my wife and make her submit, what it really means is you're going to stand before God and answer for the both of you. It's a, it's a position that we should hold very humbly and, and with some fear, with some recognition that, man, God's placed a higher expectation on me. And as a parent, the same thing stands whether you're a mother or a father. God's given you authority in a child's life, and he's going to hold you accountable for the way that you teach 
your child for the example that you set for your child. And so in any aspect of life, whether it's government officials or uh, you've got authority uh, in, in ministry or if you've got authority in whatever it might be, there's a standard that God sets in place. If you are above much or if you have much to whom much is given, much is also expected. And so there's a warning that we have to receive because I think probably all of us, if we're not now, at some point in our life, we will be in some position of authority. We will be in some position where the buck stops with us and God is going to hold us accountable for those things, for the example, for the way that we use that authority. James 1.19, along these same lines as James gets into his teaching on, uh, on, the, on words. So he sets his tone for his teaching on words with this warning about teaching. Like, hey, before you get uh, zealous to, to be able to beat other people over the head with this letter that I'm writing you, before you think you're going to stand up and tell people you're wrong because of the way you speak, he says, remember this. If you stand up there with this and say it, you're going to be held to the highest standard. Of all, But then he goes in to his teaching on the tongue, and it harkens back to, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, James 1.19. And in James 1.19, he said this. He said, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If we wanted, we could really almost use that as our thesis statement for our next 11 verses in James chapter 3. He's saying, be slow to speak. Don't open your mouth so quickly. Don't criticize so quickly. Don't put down so quickly. Don't name call so quickly. Don't find the fault in others so quickly. Be slow to speak. Now, notice he doesn't say everyone should never speak, right? We, we, we could take this too far and, and walk around and never speak life. And never address problems, never confront issues. He's not calling us to that. He's just saying be slow to speak. Make sure you've thought it through. Make sure you've prayed it through before you jump right in there and think that you're going to be the one to fix it. Be slow to anger. Be quick to listen. So he sets that tone for us a couple chapters ago. And now in James chapter 3, verse 2, he begins his discussion of the tongue. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. The Greek word right there for perfect is teleos, teleos. And teleos is not perfect as, as you and I imagine perfect. Like when we imagine perfect, we imagine uh, 100 for 100 on a test, right? Like, like we didn't miss anything. There's no red on the paper. That's perfect, that, that we didn't mess up, we didn't get anything wrong. Well, in, in the Greek, teleos had a little different comp uh, connotation. It implied completion. It, it, it implied that there was nothing lacking. So in other words, if someone was in college and they had finished up all of their college credits and all of their requirements for graduation, they would be teleos. They would be a perfect student. Doesn't mean they never got a 98 instead of 100 on a test. Doesn't mean they even got all A's, but they had completed what was asked of them. And so when James says that if you get your tongue in order, you're going to be perfect, he's not saying you're ever going to be perfect, right? He's not saying if you get this under control, you're never going to make another mistake. What he is saying is you've reached a point of maturity. You've reached a point of completion because there is a process that takes place from the time that I receive Jesus and I get saved and everything seems great and I've come to him and then the next day I go out and I blow it and I realize well, man, I've still got a lot of work to do. 
See, we think that we come to Jesus, and as soon as we come down and we receive him, boom, he zaps us, and we're going to be these perfect people, and then we realize very quickly that's not the case, right? Like, he starts a process in us. Salvation is the beginning. It is not the end. And so when he says, you reach to laos, if you get, if you're never... If you never mess up in what you say, you get to teleos. He said there's a completion of a process that God started. And I think for many of us, this is one of the hardest processes we have to go through. Because this thing doesn't like to be under control, right? We like to pop off at the mouth. We like to speak harshly. We like to put down. We like to criticize. So often, those are the things that we do. So, he says you're going to reach a completion of the, this particular process when you get to the point that you're never at fault in what you say. Verse 3, he goes on to make three illustrations in the next few verses. He illustrates it, first of all, with, it, with a horse. He says, and we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. A horse is a massive creature, right? For, for a land animal, uh, especially for a land animal that we have over here, like there's bigger ones, elephants and hippopotamus or whatever, and maybe a giraffe. But for things that we have in America, like it's a pretty big creature. It's a very large creature. And he says, so you can put a bit into the mouth of a horse. Well, I looked it up this week. The largest horses get bits that are six inches long. Six inches. The average bit is five inches long, but the biggest horses get a six-inch bit. And so a little six-inch piece of metal gets put into the mouth of a horse, and now you can steer that horse wherever you want it to go. You can control this massive, powerful, stubborn animal, and you can tell it where to go because of a little piece of six-inch metal. And he says, your tongue is like that bit. He's making this comparison Verse 4, he goes on to make illustration 2. He says, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. I brought a picture of the most famous boat of all time, if you'll put that up there for us. This is the Titanic, uh, probably the most famous boat there ever was. The Titanic was 850 feet long, and there you have a picture of its rudder. The rudder, which is that flap that bends back and forth at the very back of the boat, underneath the boat, that rudder from the very, at the widest point, that rudder is 15 feet wide. 15 feet wide. See, there, there's a formula in boating that a rudder, a rudder is supposed to be 157th the length of the ship. The rudder is 157th the length of the ship. It'll control the entire ship. And so the Titanic was 850 feet long. The rudder was 15 feet wide, which actually makes it just slightly over 157th. Uh, so it was big enough to turn the Titanic if they had turned it in time. There was actually a myth that went out for a while that the rudder was too small, and that's why they hit the iceberg. But deeper study has gone in, and I've actually read up on this because I'm a nerd. Uh, and then they've discovered that it wasn't the rudder's fault. It was the captain's fault. It was the crew's fault. They could have turned it. They just didn't heed the warning. But that little 15-feet piece of metal could control a boat 850 feet long. Saying you might be a big person. You might be in charge of a lot. You might be significant. But that little three-and-a-half-inch tongue in your mouth, that's going to control your future. It's going to control your destiny. It's going to control your direction. If we can simply get that to work the way that we need 
Verse 5, it says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And he goes on to make his third illustration. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So now he makes his most dramatic illustration of all. He's gone from the bit in the horse and the rudder on the ship, and now he goes to the spark that burns up an entire forest. This is the greatest contrast, right? The forest is larger than the Titanic. The forest is far larger than the horse, and the spark is much smaller than the rudder and smaller even than the bit. But the little bitty spark can destroy the entire forest if that little spark gets somewhere that it's not supposed to be. He says, that is what your tongue is like, that your tongue can destroy your life, that your tongue can destroy the life of the people around you, of the people that you love, the people that you care about. If you use your tongue in the same way that I did on that day in eighth grade and you use it because of your selfish motives and your selfish desires and the little things that are just important to you, you can actually bring death into the life of someone you say that you love. And I, we could flip this around and, and make it a lot easier and more comfortable, and we could talk about all the time somebody's done that to you, right? Like, then it'd be, oh, be more relief. Like, oh, I love to think about the times somebody burned me. I love to think about the times that somebody messed me up. Like, it, like, a lot of times we like to dwell in those pains, but that's not the direction James brought it. James didn't bring it and think about all the times that somebody's hurt you. He says, man, you need to stop hurting others. You need to get your tongue under control, and that's the way that we have to receive this. Verse 6, since the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. As we said a couple minutes ago, this is obviously very figurative language. This is not to be taken literally, but he's making a statement here, making a point. He's saying when your tongue is unbridled and uncontrolled, it's going to bring destruction Verse 7, he says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I'm going to park here for just a second and ask you the question, what is the poison that pours out of your mouth? See, James is writing here to Christians. James isn't writing to the lost. He's not writing to the, the bad people. He's writing to those who have received Jesus. He's writing to those who have been redeemed. And he says, even though you've been redeemed, there's still some poison in your tongue. So for you, is, is your poison, are, are you somebody who makes excuses? And they sound like reasons. And you get kind of get off the hook. Is the poison for you that, that you're somebody that when you get a juicy piece of information, you just can't wait to tell to other people. And make sure that you tell them, don't tell anybody else this. But, and you think that that's actually going to work, right? Like, because you couldn't tell anybody, and so you relate it on. Uh, is the poison in your tongue that you're just short with people, and your priorities and the things that are going on in your life are more important than the things that are pulling at you? They're more important than your family, your wife, your kid, your husband, uh, is that the way that the poison comes out for you? Is the poison that comes out for you is that you just are just constantly negative. You grumble and complain, and you find the, the little bit of dirt in every good situation. You find the problem, and you find the way that this is not going to work out. Is that you're just critical, and no matter what somebody else tries to do, you're just going to sit back and point out, the flaws in their game plan or the way that, well, if I would have done it, I would have done it this way, and it would have been so much better. 
See, all of us, even as Christians, even as God's people, we allow this poison to get out of us, and it infects the people around us. And James is saying this is not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 9, he goes on, he says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. This is the part that hits me the hardest. This is where it really hits home for me because I love to worship God. Like, I, for as long as, as I can remember, since I was 13, 14 years old, I got set on fire to worship God. And it's something that I enjoy. It's something I look forward to. I love to come into his presence with other Christians and get to worship. I love that we have this incredible worship team who can do all the things that I can't, that I didn't get those gifts. I love that, that we're blessed with that opportunity. I love to worship. I love to put on a song when I'm driving down the road or, or put on a YouTube video from Hillsong while I'm in the shower. And I just, I love to worship. I see myself as a worshiper. I na we named our son Judah because Judah means praise. It's a big part of who we are. And yet he says, if you think you're so worshipful, you think you bring God all this glory with your mouth, but you're cutting down the people around you. The implication here is that I'm actually canceling out my praise. Because he points to that they're made in God's likeness. What he's saying is, if I worship the creator, but I destroy his creation, I've invalidated my praise. I can't truly honor the creator if I don't honor his creation. I can't truly claim to love the creator if I hate the people he loves. I can't truly say that I care about God if I don't care about the people that God cares about. And that's hard for me to hear because I think I'm good at praising God, but I'm good at hurting people. And many of us in this room maybe can feel that same thing. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying quit praising God. I'm not saying that, well, we wasted 15 minutes <laughs> this morning at the beginning of service. Yes, there is value in worshiping him, and yes, he inhabits our praises, and yes, he speaks to us to that, and all of that is true, but he's also saying, start transitioning that glory to me, that praise to me, out of just your relationship with me, and start showing me that you care about the people I care about. Show me how much you value the creator by starting to value the creation. By starting to honor the dignity that I've placed inside of each individual. Notice he doesn't point to the fact that they're Christians or the fact that the Holy Spirit lives in them. He doesn't even go there. He points to the fact they're made in God's likeness. In other words, this applies to everybody. This applies to the people who don't know Jesus. This applies to the people who have the sin that makes you uncomfortable. This applies to the people who serve a different God or have a different religion. This applies to the people who hate you. This applies across all demographics, across all of humanity. He says we need to honor people who are made in God's likeness. We need to quit cursing them. We need to quit cutting them down. This isn't like my favorite thing to preach on because it's all over my toes. But it's truth that we need to grab a hold of. It's something that I believe God's people need to begin to evaluate about ourselves. What are we doing with our tongues? 
Verse 11 and 12, he wraps up his thought on this topic. He says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Fresh water being the glory to God and salt water being the cursing to man. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. He's referring to the seed and how it grows and a plant is going to bear itself, right? If I plant a watermelon, I'm not growing pumpkins. If I plant a carrot, I'm not growing tomatoes. If I plant a fig tree, I'm not growing apples, right? We all get that. He's saying God's deposited something in you. His Holy Spirit's been deposited in you, and that should begin to bear fruit in the way that you speak to people. There should be evidence. If you look into my conversations, if you look into the way that I talk to my wife or the way that I talk to my son or the way that I talk to my staff, the way that I talk to to the people behind the counter at the restaurant or, or at the cash register or whatever that is, that there should be evidence that God has begun something in me. And the same applies to you if you call yourself a Christian. We should be able to recognize the fruit of God's love in the way we speak to each other. So he goes on to shift gears as he wraps up the chapter. We have six more verses. We'll move through pretty quickly. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. This is his transition verse. So he starts out by talking about the tongue, and now he's going to change directions, but he points it back to the tongue. Who's wise and understanding among you? Don't think that you're going to prove it now by going and sounding wise and understanding. He's not telling us to to now go out and try to prove our Christianity by the things that we say to impress people. He's saying the things that you say should be evidence of God because it's for his glory and because he's at work in your life, not because you want everybody else to look at you and say, man. He really gets it. He's really applying Pastor Troy's message this week. I'm so proud. Like, we're, we're not doing it to impress people. We're doing it for God's glory and to bless people, not to impress people. So we make sure that we have the right motivation. He says, if you've really got wisdom and understanding, show it by the way you live, by your deeds. Again, James is all about action. And then he says, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The ultimate proof of wisdom is our humility. Because humility recognizes that I'm nothing. My righteousness is as filthy rags. God doesn't need me to stand up here. God doesn't need me to run this church. He doesn't need me. He allows me to be a part of what he's doing. He invites me onto his team and onto his mission, and he does the same thing for you. And that's an incredible honor that he would allow us to be part of his work, but he doesn't need me. And if I keep humility at the forefront of my heart, if I continue to walk in humility, he says, I'm going to walk in wisdom and understanding. Verse 14, he says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, and I love the air quotes here. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and ever evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. James 3.17 is a great wisdom test. If you're trying to make a decision, if you're trying to decide, hey, is this wise Is this what God would have me to do? Is this where God would lead me? This is a great test to apply. He says, is it pure? Well, if it's not pure, it's not wise. 
Is it peace-loving? If it's not peace-loving, it's not wise. Is it considerate? Well, if it's not considerate of others, it's not wise. Is it submissive? If it doesn't honor the authority God's placed in your life, then it's not wise. Is it full of mercy? If it's not merciful, then it's not wise. Remember, last week we saw that, that recognizing my own need for mercy is so essential to being able to give mercy to others. There's wisdom in recognizing that. It says, does it produce good fruit? Evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. If it doesn't produce good fruit, then it's not wisdom. Is it impartial? Remember, in chapter 2, we saw favoritism is forbidden. If I'm favoriting, if I'm choosing someone because they look like me or talk like me or sound like me or make me feel good, it's wrong. If it's impartial, then it's walking in wisdom. Is it sincere? Is it authentic? It's a great way for us to test our motives, to, to apply those questions and to ask ourselves, are the things that I'm walking in, the things that I'm doing, do they live up to this standard? Verse 18, he finishes off his chapter. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. As we get ready to close, I want to hit on this very, very quickly. Notice he says peacemakers, not peacekeepers. I'm a big believer that there's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. In other words, a peacekeeper recognizes there's a conflict, there's an issue, there's a problem, and the peacekeeper is going to work around that problem so that me, like you're on this side, I'm on this side, the problem's in the middle. Well, the peacekeeper is going to work around the problem so that we can stay on good terms. The problem with being a peacekeeper is that peacekeeping never lasts very long because the problem stays there. The problem persists. I can work around the problem for only so long. But at some point in time, I can't work around it anymore because either the problem continues to grow and I can't get through it, or the problem becomes too, too uncomfortable for me to bear or too uncomfortable for you to bear, and that's when we blow up on each other, right? Most of the biggest fights that you ever get in are things that, that have been an issue for a long, long time, and you finally just couldn't take it anymore, and you blew up. And so this is a great marriage, this is a great family principle, this, this is a great, you know, in, in all of our relationships. A peacemaker recognizes there's something in between me and you. And instead of ignoring it and leaving it there, I'm going to work through the problem to get to you. In other words, I'm going to honor you and honor our relationship and value our relationship so much that I'm going to do what's uncomfortable. And that might mean I have to bring up some stuff. That's not easy. That might mean I have to point out some things that I don't love that you don't love. That might mean that we need to get some help or we need to get some counseling. That might mean that, that there's some ugly part that we have to deal with, but we're not just going to ignore that elephant anymore. We're not just going to leave it there anymore. We're going to work through the problem to get it fixed because we're never going to truly be at peace as long as the problem's in between us. Because you can be at peace and be speaking nicely and there's not a fight going on, but you're not at peace when that problem's there, right? God, we look on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. When God speaks of peace, he wants your heart to be at peace. He wants your relationships, the center of the relationship to be at peace. And many times that means we're going to have to work through the problem. And so what James says is if you're a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, but if you love the relationship enough to make peace. And here's the difference between being a peacemaker and just stirring up trouble. The peacemaker, the motivation is I want us to be well. I want us to be at peace. The person who's out making trouble is, I want to enjoy myself. I want me to be good. I'm worried about my stuff. The peacemaker wants us to be well. It's the relationship that, that's, that's valued. So if you're going to be a peacemaker, you know what James says? He says, if you sow in peace, 
you're going to reap a harvest of righteousness. So that means you're going to become more like God. You're going to become more like Jesus. As we wrap up, I've got three goals for you this week, three challenges for you this week from this message, the three pieces of homework between now and next Sunday. The first part you probably already know is read James chapter 4 every day and read the corresponding Proverbs. Today is November 1st, so you're reading Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 this week, uh, and we're going to read James 4 seven times. If you haven't done any of it, jump on board with us this week. This is the time to do it. That's your first challenge. The second part of your challenge, I want you to identify the most common poison in your tongue and start to deal with it. Is it gossip? Is it put-downs? Is it negativity? Is it dishonesty? Is it name-calling? Is it profanity? Is it arrogance? Is it doubt? Is it making commitments you can't or won't keep? Is it just biting sarcasm? Is it being short with people? Whatever that looks like in your life, whatever it is that's the biggest challenge for you, the, the biggest poison that you recognize, okay, I need to get this right. I need to quit just saying what's convenient and start speaking the truth. Uh, I need to quit putting somebody else down. I need to quit using that name. I need to quit, quit speaking that profanity. I need to quit that gossip. I don't know what it is. Whatever that poison is in you, just, just yes, we need to work on all of them, but let's start with the biggest one. Let's go after the daddy first, and then we can work on our, our way down, right? So find, what is the biggest poison in your tongue? Deal with it this week. Man, begin to pray each morning for strength. God, help me not to, I'm not going to lie today. I'm not going to be dishonest today. I'm not going to gossip today. I'm not going to put someone down today. I'm not going to talk behind my boss's back today. Whatever that is for you, dedicate it to God in the morning. God, give me that strength. And if you mess up during the day, repent immediately. But go to battle with that one poison this week. And then the third challenge, I want you to consider finding the biggest obstacle to peace between you and somebody in your life and begin working to make peace. Well, what is that restlessness in your heart in a key relationship? What, what is that thing that, that the enemy can keep bringing up that just bothers you? Maybe it's from your past. Maybe it's something that's going on now. Maybe it's a situation that, that you can't resolve immediately. Maybe it's a conversation you need to have with somebody you're not going to see until the holidays or, or something like that. But, but begin just man, begin tilling the soil of your heart. Begin praying over that situation. Begin asking God for the strength to address it and to handle it. But we're going to be peacemakers. We're going to be people that reap a harvest of righteousness. And we're going to start having even those uncomfortable conversations. Remember, the motivation is not so that you can be well. The motivation is so that the relationship can be restored. So the relationship can be healthy. So that the relationship can sustain the way that God has intended for it to do. So those are our challenges this week. We're going to read James chapter 4 in the Proverbs. We're going to deal with the number one poison from our tongue, and we're going to look for a way to make peace. If you do even two of those three things this week, it's going to be a good week. Amen? And let's shoot for all three. Let's, let's go for it. Let's